Well, thanks, John. We uh, are blessed that we get um, to see a different experience in, in God and how different people uh, relate to Him and understand Him. And so if you are creative at all and you want to share something with us, whether that's art or music or whatever that may be that, that God has laid on your heart that is related to what we're talking about or, or just a big picture of who God is, please let us know. We want to share that as, as a big part of the family. Um, I do want to say Happy Mother's Day as well. Jeff is smiling. Um, he did a little bit forget that one. Um, make sure you don't forget to call your mom today. Um, but uh, yeah, happy Mother's Day. Um, the good news of the gospel is that we get to celebrate now God's goodness and God's grace, that we are now the most celebratory people on the planet because we have the ones that who actually have received the most joy and we understand true joy now. And so as the people of the world are now celebrating mom today, I want to remind you that we get to celebrate more than just moms. We get to celebrate the creator of women. The one who, 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 who designed them wonderfully in his image to image him in a very unique way that men could not do by themselves. They couldn't do it on their own. And so that we couldn't, we couldn't do that. And so God created women and now we get to worship him, not them. We get to put our hope in him, not them. And we get to see his amusing, amazing beauty in all those things. Because of the gospel now, we have been restored. And so regardless of whether you had a great mom like I did, or whether you had a mom that didn't image God very well, or, or you're a woman that desires to have children and can't, or you, or you have multiple children, or, or you're single, or you're married, the good news is that we're part of a new family, where God is graciously orchestrating all these things. Um, He's graciously orchestrating all things in our lives so that our hearts would see him and feel him and that we would know his loving arms and care around us. And the truth is that God has blessed us by giving us each other. And as I look around this room and as I know many of you, God has greatly blessed this family with amazing women. Amazing women and mothers and women in all of the stages of life that get to point us to Jesus, that mother us, that, that love us, that show his grace to us. We are truly blessed in this family. And we don't say that enough, but thank you, ladies, for mothering us and imaging Jesus well to us. Thank you. And we value that, and, and we, we bless God for that. We bless God that he allows us to see that and to be a part of your lives and to be a part of one family together. And so as we celebrate um, and as you celebrate mothers today, um, make sure that we celebrate the creator of moms and the creator of women who uniquely made them. And so I want to I pray for, for you ladies, and then I want to jump into the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to cover a, an amazing chapter that just fell right here. Um, and so, our Father, I thank you um, that you, uh, in your grace and in your love, um, didn't leave man alone, but you created woman. And that, that we get to image you uniquely and differently, um, all complementing one another to show a beautiful picture of who you are. And so, Father, as we, um, as we think about mothers today, Lord, we thank you for the many women that are in our lives. We thank you that uh, we get to see um, the image of Jesus. We thank you that even in the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of, of women and the brokenness of maybe even the moms in our own lives, um, that, that you are bigger than that. 
and that you love us and care for us and you send others within a family to be those pieces of life for us. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the, the many ways that you have blessed this family here um, with amazing women who love you and who care for you and who point us back to Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We, um, we, we bless them. We ask you to bless them today and we ask you to empower them. We ask you to, to give them an extra measure of grace and patience. Um, Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to, to remind them of your truth and build them up and, and empower them to lead many people uh, to Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would, you would advance your kingdom through the women in this family. And so, Father, we thank you that we get to be a part of that and we get to participate and see what you're doing. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to jump into the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, We started this series two weeks ago. um, And this is the first time I'm teaching on it, so that's great. Um, And when we laid this out um, months and months ago, I really didn't look at the holiday calendar. Um, Maybe if I did, I probably would not have picked uh, this this passage that we're in today at the end of chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. Um, but, um, but the more that I looked at it and the more that I studied it, um, I think it's actually a great passage to highlight the goodness of God and the blessing of women. And you may not see that at first when we read it, but hopefully as we discuss it, you'll get a bigger picture of Jesus as the creator and the designer of men and of women. And so just a quick review before we jump into that. Um, The first part of this book, um, Ryan taught on, and we see the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy um, and charging him to lead the church uh, to worship God and and not to get caught up in in false doctrinal disputes and things that that really says lead people astray and cause them to really live as they desire um, and under the pretenses of, of God. And causes them um, to, to live away and say, this is what God says, really, but really that's really how they want to live. And he says, rather stay focused on the truth of the gospel. And then Paul reminds them of the gospel that, that he's supposed to teach. And he calls Timothy to lead the church um, from a place of need. And really offers his own life as an as a offering, as an example of, of what, that although he was completely opposed to Jesus... Um, God graciously pursues him and saves him. And and not only did God powerfully save him, but gave him a new purpose. Gave him an opportunity to be a display of God's patience by allowing Paul to participate in God's amazing plan for the world. And so we're, which brings us to chapter 1, verse 18, and I'm going to start reading there. And we see Paul charged Timothy again to lead the church really in a gospel-centered way. In gospel-centered living. And then for the next five chapters, um, he's going he's to spin that out and say specifically this is what it looks like in these parts of life. And so chapter 1, verse 18. And we're just going to kind of work through this passage and take it in pieces and, and go through this today. So chapter 1, 18 says this. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwrecks of their faith, among who are, I'm just going to wreck this name, Herminus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul reminds them first that there's going to be a battle for life in the gospel. 
that in order to live a life of the gospel, there's a role in rejecting all the things in life that pull us away from imaging God properly. And he gives, he gives us this image of a shipwreck. It's an image that, that Paul is pretty familiar with. We know he's been shipwrecked two times. And so he's seen the destruction. He's seen the loss. He's seen the pain. And he takes that image and he relates that to someone's life who doesn't live their life in the gospel. And he says, be careful not to steer the ship of your life into those things. And, and he says to Timothy, be careful not to steer the ship of the church, the life of the church, God's people, um, into those things, but live in the truth of the gospel in all areas of life so that those things don't happen to you, so that there isn't the pain and destruction and the loss that takes place in those things. And then I love him. He starts, he says that, says, he says kind of, do fight that battle. And then he goes on to chapter 2 and he tells us how to fight. And he doesn't just say, do this in the battle. He says, he, look, at, look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom from all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am the telling the truth, and I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And so he says this, he says it starts with prayer. Prayer for yourself and prayer for everyone else. And then he gives us a reminder of who we're praying to and and why. He says, it's such a reminder that you cannot live the gospel life that God calls us to without communicating to God about it. In the book of Acts, we see this over and over and over again, that the first church, they were praying and they were devoted to prayer all the time in life. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says the same thing in 5.17. He says this, pray without ceasing. In Colossians 4.2, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. It's this idea, as God's people, we're not only designed by God for prayer, but we're called to give ourselves to it. Being devoted to prayer means that, it doesn't mean that, that prayer is the only thing that you do. No more than, than being devoted to, to a wife means that all the husband does is, is hang out with his wife. It's this idea that, that the devotion to her affects everything else in his life. And it causes him to give himself to her in many different ways. What, what he thinks about, what he does, who he talks to, that changes the very identity as a devoted husband. And so being devoted to prayer means that there's going to be a new pattern of prayer that looks like devotion to prayer in your life. It may look different for different people, but it's going to be a significant part of your life that's devoted to prayer, and it's one of the ways that we bear His image to others. As as the world is watching, that we're people that are are devoted to prayer. If you look all throughout the story of God, we'll see that, that life devoted to prayer is really how we were designed to live. Before the fall, Adam and Eve's life was an open dialogue with God. When they get into trouble is when they begin to do things on their own. Basically, they believe they could decide how to handle a situation without communicating to God about it. 
And Satan comes along and says, you can have wisdom apart from God. You can have the ability to do life without asking God's opinion on it. If God's opinion doesn't matter the most, why do we need to communicate with him? And so they choose to do life without asking God what's best. And life as they know it is lost for them and for the rest of us. Communication with God was broken. And can I say, since that point, humans have struggled to do life without God's opinion, speaking into every decision and speaking into every matter of their lives. And so what Paul's saying here, he's saying, is you've been restored. Because of the gospel, the good news is that the broken relationship with God has been mended. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus now, you and I once again get to live in a life in constant communication with God where we offer supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving for all people. Notice this isn't something that they were, they were called to, to try hard to do, but because of the gospel, it's who we are now. This comes out of an identity, not a doing. You, you don't get devoted to, uh, you, don't, you don't just pray, you get to be devoted to prayer. You get to pray continually. The power of the gospel has restored you now back to the pre-fall state. It's your identity now. So praying, so communicating with God is not something that you have to do. It's something that you get to do because it's who you are now. You get to live with his opinion mattering the most on every subject matter because that's who you and I are in Christ now. And as a family, I want to I call us to that. I want to remind us of that, that this, is, that this is our identity, that we get to be devoted to prayer. Not because it's something that Christians do now, or it's something that I'll do this because I'll get a desired result in my life or desired result in the church, but because it's really a gospel issue. You see, if we're not people of prayer, we're saying with our lives, we don't believe the gospel. We're saying it's just something in the past that has some future ramifications. That the gospel is not really, is, is, is really just only for my justification. It just makes me right with God. It's not something that changes the very essence of who we are in the everyday. So when we don't pray, we're believing that lie. We're saying, God, you don't need to change me anymore. You don't need to mold me back into your image I can figure that out. I don't need the gospel for my sanctification as well. We're saying with our lives, I need God to get to heaven, but until then I can make it on my own when we don't pray. Basically, I can live going through life doing whatever's right in my own eyes. And if you remember anything about the story, that doesn't go very well. We can say, I figured it all out now. In the life God's called me to do, the, the, the gospel purpose that he's calling me into, I can do that without consulting you, God. Sure, I'll consult you when I get into a bind or when it fits into my life schedule. But a life is screaming at God, when we don't pray, I got this. Your opinion really doesn't matter to me. And as a family, I want to call us to be a people of prayer so that we would image the truth of the gospel in our lives. So that we would say with our lives, by God's grace, I've been saved and I'm still in need of the gospel. Just as much as you are who don't even know him yet. That you would believe him for the first time and that I would learn to believe him every day. 
And I need the gospel to mold me into the identity that he has given me through the work of Jesus Christ. And notice here that prayer is not just designed for myself. It was designed to live in in community. It says pray for all people. And so when I pray for all people, when I do that, it's pleasing to God because it reveals that he is the most glorious. That he is the one that's actually deserving praise and honor, not someone else. I tell you, we get to live in that identity, that we get to be people of prayer, and that changes the way we live a gospel-centered life. And so as Paul goes on here in chapter 2, he says, with this foundation of prayer, here's how men and women live that out. Here's how men and women live out in gospel community with one another, uniquely displaying the way that God designed them, graciously living with one another in complementary roles um, in a life of prayer. And so as I read this, the problem is oftentimes when we read these these passages that, that come here next, we come to them with such a broken picture and such broken images of what men and women are supposed to look like that they can seem disparaging or they can seem like one sex is promoted over the other rather than they're actually complementary of God's design for men and women. And so I'm going to read these verses and then we're going to go back and look at them together. And so as I read them, please... Understand, that's where it's coming from. Verse 8. This is why most people don't preach this on Mother's Day. (laughs) I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in a respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, I told you that's not a popular text for Mother's Day. Um, And there's a lot to discuss here. Um, But I do want to keep in mind as... Now we got that behind us. All right. I want to keep in mind... A couple of you knew that we were preaching that this week and they're like, are you sure you're going to do that? And I'm like, yes, we're doing that one. Okay. Um, As we we think about this... um, I want to keep in mind that, that as we're looking in, at this, some of this is contrary to our culture, right? And I want to say the gospel is often offensive to our culture and to the brokenness in our own selves. And I want to keep this clear as we process these things, that in our gospel identity, it's clearly defined what our value is. And it's not based on a role. It's based on what God declares about you and me, And what he's saved us into and back to. And our differences are not something to be disparaging about. And our roles do not equate with our worth. We find our worth in what Jesus has done. Not what sex we are or what job we have to do in life. And so when God created man and woman, he made us the very specific way that we are. With differences so that we would be suited to be complementary roles. And that's true inside and outside of marriage. 
So just be clear here as well. The differences are not a result of sin. Sin did not create manhood and womanhood. God did. Sin did not create diversity and complementary roles into existence. God did. Before sin ever entered the world, God ordained and fitted Adam to be a loving and caring and strong leader for his wife Eve. And before sin entered the world, God ordained and fitted Eve to be a partner who supported and honored that leadership and helped him carry it out. Both in the image of God, the way that he created them. Both equal in their, in their God-like personhood, but also different in their manhood and their womanhood. And the pattern was beautiful. They respected one another, they served one another, they complimented each other, and they enjoyed each other. And what happened was sin actually ruined that harmony. Sin made man abandon servant leadership and become passive or harsh or insensitive, uncaring, or some other distorted picture of biblical headship. And can I say, sin distorted women's support and honor into manipulation and defiance and helplessness or some other distortion of true biblical submission. And so Paul is not arbitrarily choosing roles for men or women here, nor is he simply adapting some cultural expectation of the day. He's saying there's something about the way that God has set up and designed things at the very beginning that made this kind of order good. And the way that we image God and the way that we live a gospel-centered now, life now goes back to some of this. It goes back to not some of this, all of this, right? In other words, true manhood and true womanhood should mesh more effectively, are, are, are preserved, are better nurtured, are more fulfilled, are more fruitful in this pattern of home and in the church is better than any other pattern in the world because God made it this way to be. It's part of God's gracious design and it's good for men and for women. And he wants the people of God, the church, to get back to what God created at the beginning. Because the truth is, is God saved us from the brokenness of the fall so that once again, you and I could live as pre-fall image bearers reflecting Him properly to the world around us. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God doesn't abolish what he created at the beginning. He saves us back to it. So I want to take this in three sections as we look at men and women and what God calls us to. So verse 8 and 9, I'm going to read it again. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without arguing or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and golds or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So in this first section, I want to say what we see is that gospel living um, coincides with what we're known for as men and women. Okay, it coincides with what we're, what we're called to be known for. First, it says, men, you're called to be prayer. Again, we see this. You're, you're, you're men that are, are to lead through prayer. You're to do the work of prayer. Lifting of hands has this idea of work. And so you do the work of prayer. Right? You, as a gospel center man, we do the work of lifting all people up to God. And we do that lovingly in prayer. 
which really is the opposite of lifting hands in anger or in quarreling. And unfortunately, men as a whole are more known for lifting their hands in work or lifting their hands for fighting or lifting their hands in anger or lifting their hands to quarrel with one another more than we're known for lifting our hands in prayer. And can I say the church, God's people, should look different than that. I don't know about you, but, but many of the churches that I've been a part of as I was growing up, from my experience, often women are more known for prayer than men. I would go to prayer meetings when I was a little kid with my family or when I was leading another church in Philly and there was majority of women there and it was always the mom that was praying or the grandmother that was praying and the men were not doing the work of prayer. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Guys, you are called to be leading in prayer in your home, in your missional communities. You should be the first one to jump up and pray. In your relationships, you should be known as the ones who do the work of prayer. Whatever relationship that is, whether that's a dating relationship, whether that's a friendship relationship, whether that's in a missional community, whether that's as a husband, whatever that is, you are called to do the work of prayer. And the reason why we do that is so that your work would not be seen as the one who's doing the accomplishment. Because men, we want to be the accomplishers, often. And other way, we are called to prayer so people would see God's work and not your work. And I want to call you to that. That's how you're called to live. And he goes on here and he talks about women. And so men, this is, that's your... He goes on here and says, I want to talk about a gospel-centered woman. And this is what they should be known for. They should be known for modesty and self-control. And just to be clear here, he's not saying you can't look nice. Okay, he's not saying don't ever braid your hair. My kids have braided hair. Um, it doesn't always say don't, don't ever wear jewelry, as some have taken this verse to mean. What he's talking about here is that the life of a gospel woman, um, what she looks like and what she's known for, is that she is one of modesty and self-control. She's talking about what you find your value in. And I think as we look at that, um, often this is broken in our world as well. In our culture, every advertisement is saying to women, find your value in what you look like. And can I say, it says to men, this is what you should desire women to be like. Our culture says, women, your image, your body, your clothing, your hair is what defines you. And can I say, women everywhere fall into that lie, and men, you and I promote it. And it's the same lie that Satan used in the garden. This fruit will now define you, Eve. If you eat it, it'll give you a new image. You'll be like God. And since then, we've been fighting, and women have been fighting to find their value in their image. And the good news of the gospel says, no, 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 that's not the image that you're looking for. Jesus' image is what defines you now. Not any of those other things. Not any of those other things. The women, the call here in your life is to live a life in the gospel where you find your identity, your worth, your attractiveness and how you live your life, not by self-rule but by, or, or by self-image, but being self-controlled and submitted to Christ's image. A life lived in His image now. And can I tell you, God loves the look of Jesus. 
It's not just the latest fashion to walk down the runway. Jesus is the best thing that ever walked down this planet. And ladies, please find your attractiveness and your image in Jesus. And that's what he's calling us to here. That's what he's calling men and women to find their value and find what what they look for and what defines you and what you're known for in those things, in God's image. It looks like prayer and it looks like finding his value in that. And he goes on in verse 11 and 12 and he continues to build on this idea. And he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one today because we're going to come back to this next week, actually, because it builds on chapter 3. But what we see following uh, these verses is God lays out the offices of the church. And so these three words, quietness and teach and authority, often have become, I don't know, say trigger words that, that conjure up all kinds of disparaging thoughts and have, have, have led people to, to, to use Scripture poorly here. And we're going to look at more, we're going to look at each one of them next week, I promise, um, as we look at the rest of First Timothy. Uh, it talks about the role of elders in the church. And what you find out is that elders have two basic responsibilities. They're called to govern and they're called to teach. And so what Paul's doing is he's actually setting up here that the role of elders is for men. So he's setting that up here and he's going to go on in in the rest of the next chapter. In other words, this, this quietness here is the opposite of exercising authority over men. It says don't exercise authority, instead be silent. The word here, quiet, doesn't refer to to absolute silence, that a woman is not allowed to speak. That's not what it's meaning. The the kind of quietness is that that it's one that respects and honors the leadership of men God has called to oversee the church. So by the way, can I also say, this is the call for men as well. For men and women are both called to honor and affirm the eldership that God has put in their lives in the church so that they may be equipped to do the work of the church. It's God's plan for his entire family, male and female, that we be equipped and mobilized to do gospel work through the plurality of spiritual men who primarily take responsibility for leadership and and eldership of the church so that they would be equipped. That's God's plan for the entire church. That's, that's his plan. We're going to talk about that more. And in verse 13 and 14, Paul goes on and gives two reasons why this has happened. Why men bear the primary responsibility for leading and teaching the church. He says first, Adam was formed first. Then Eve. There's a, there's a created order. There's a created order that, that happened. And then he goes on and says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And I know that's another can of worms right there. And I'm going to put a pin in that one too because we're going to talk more about that next week. But just to be clear here, what Paul is not saying, he's not degrading, he's not holding women back from the way that God has gifted them or the way that God can use them. He's not saying they're weak-minded or he's not saying they're more vulnerable to deception. He's not saying that. Men and women are equally vulnerable to believing lies and falling into sin. And both are in need of Jesus to restore your brokenness. What God is saying here through Paul is these are specific roles within the family and he's establishing headship of elders in the church family. And he's, re- he, he's, he's saying this is what it's going to look like and we're going to spin more of that out. But I want to remind us that the good news of the gospel is that our roles do not equate with worth. 
Rather, the role, our role is to, our worth is secured in Jesus, regardless of whatever role He calls us to in the church, and whatever role He calls us to in life. And so now we're free to live and do whatever He asked, because we're completely loved and completely valued. You and me, man, woman, wherever you are, you're completely loved and completely valued in Jesus. We're going to talk more about those things next week, but I want to get on to this last section and look at these final verses today. Since it is Mother's Day, we might as well talk about childbearing. Um, And verse 15 says this, um, Yet you will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, yikes, what does that mean? Well, there's different ideas on this. Um, and many have, have suggested that through childbearing actually refers to the birth of Christ. That, that it bore the Savior and salvation is now available to all. And while that is true, and that's a piece of what that is, I think if we actually look at the original language um, and in the other places where, where this, this form of the word childbearing occurs in the Bible, we see it later on in, in 1 Timothy 5.14. And it simply refers to bearing children. Says this in five fourteen. So I would have the younger woman marry and bear children, have babies. That's basically what it means, have babies. So so we want to look at how does this fit into the context of where we're at. So with any other passage, we want to look at the context of this verse and, and we want to look around it as for interpretation. In the context here, Paul is arguing why men should be the authority and teachers in in the church rather than women. And he says she here, and he refers back to women in general in verse 14. And we know this because there's a shift from the singular to the plural. He says they in the next phrase. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith. So it can't just be referring to one woman. It can't just be referring to, one, to Mary who will bring salvation through childbearing. So then what does it mean? What, what are we talking about here? Well, I want to... Offer you up. There's a British scholar named Henry Alford in the late 1800s, and he makes this observation. Um, he says this: that being saved through something doesn't mean that mean being saved by it. By, but many mean being saved through it as through uh, being saved through danger. He also notices that Paul doesn't just combine uh, these two words here, being saved and through. He also does it in 1 Corinthians 3.15. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, she will be saved through childbearing means, I mean, she will be saved not by the means of it, but through it, that, that in spite of it, in spite of the engulfing pains of childbirth. And I think this is, is correct, especially if we go back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 3, if you follow it here, um, where we go back to the fall, and God comes and he offers hope and consequences at the same time. And he deals with man's sin, and he deals with man, and he gives him a consequence, and he deals with Satan, and he gives him a consequence, and, and he gets to women, and there's a distinct part of that curse. And it's, it was in the part of bearing children. In Genesis 3.16, he says this, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now the, the pain of childbearing has changed some. 
with modern medicine in our country. It's changed some, but, but for centuries before and in many places in the, this world, there's no hygiene, there's no epidurals, there's no episiotomies, there's no sutures, there's no cesarean sections, there's no antibiotics, there's no painkillers, and often no recovery. An untold number of women in our world have died, died in childbirth. And countless more suffer the, the ongoing pain and the wounds of childbirth that prevent them from any kind of normal sexual life. And, and, and it's broken, as well as the broken part of the curse that keeps many women from having babies, from being actually able to have the children that they desire. And, and in other words, probably more than, than, and even more than a day, there's aspects of childbearing that feel like a curse from God. And often that has lasted and lasted a lifetime for women. Not just in the moment of giving birth, but lasting wounds of childbirth. And sin has taken its toll on every aspect of marriage, on every aspect of birth, and every aspect of child rearing. And the pain of childbearing is far greater than just the pain of those, those few minutes or hours when a child is moving out of the birth canal. And I think we've often reduced the pain of childbearing to something minimal. And I think as we think about this, it would still be easy and still is easy for many women to fall into despair and feel that God is against them. That He was their cursor, not their Savior. And I believe what Paul is doing here, he's actually addressing that pain and that despair with the hope of the gospel in the context of calling women to God living. And he's saying, no to the curse, no to the pain of childbearing. Even if they last a lifetime, they are not God's final words to women. God mourns this pain as well, and he intends to save women. He intends for her to be a fellow heir with man in the grace of life, like 1 Peter 3 says. The pain of childbearing um, is the curse, but the promise is that there's a future exemption from that curse in its worst and heaviest effects. And not just that, that one day will, will women safely bear children, but Paul's purposefully saying these words, he says, will be saved, that there's a purpose now through the trials, regardless of your pain. God is saying, this curse is not my last word to you, women. There's a hope, there's saving for you, there's rescue, there's perseverance for you. I'm going to give you a new future through faith in Jesus Christ. The curse will be undone. And God is saying to ladies, even though many of you, and maybe even many of you in this room, um, and all throughout history, are feeling the ongoing effects and the curse of the pain of childbearing, the lifelong wound that it leaves, do not despair. Do not despair. God has a plan for you, a plan of salvation, not of destructions. God's word to you is hope, not curse. Continue living in light of the hope of the gospel. Live a life in faith and in love and holiness with self-control, reflecting the hope that I'm giving you, not the curse that you came out of. And can I say it's the same for you, men, as we think about working, they talked about here earlier in this passage, that, that your work 
through salvation, that the curse of work and its futility and its, its misery of work, God will bring you through that pain as well. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, men and women no longer have to live in despair, living in light of the curse. You and I get to live a life of hope, knowing that Jesus has done the work and your future is secure. See, the good news is the gospel is that although there is that we may lament the pain in our life, we may lament the brokenness in our lives, it's not the place where we dwell. It's not the place where we stay. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and become a curse for us. The sting of the curse has been removed. First Thessalonians reminds us that, that, that we no longer grieve the same way as those who have no hope. Because of Jesus, there is new hope for us. He took the curse for you and for me. And there's life and there's reason to celebrate, even in the midst of pain, regardless of how horrific that may be in your life. He has bore our grief and our sorrows, and he has defeated the curse. The curse will be undone, and every wound will be healed. We get to live a life now in faith, bearing not the fruit of the curse, but the fruit of the gospel. We get to live a life bearing the fruit of, of restoration, the fruit of love, the fruit of joy, the, peace, the fruit of peace, the fruit of self-control, the fruit of patience, all those things. We get to live a life of not, not a life defined by the curse anymore. We get to now live a life in open communication with God, a life of prayer, where we get to ask Him to remind us that the curse is gone. Remind us of our identity that he's been recreated us to be. That we get to live a life as a family that correctly displays what he's like. Revealing that he's the most glorious one deserving of praise and honor. And that he gets to define who we are and give us the roles that we have. And that our value is in in, in what he says about us. And we get to compliment one another amazing ways that, that we would, so that others would see how great and glorious He is. And as a family, that's how we get to live now. That's the good news of the gospel, that, the, that we get to be saved through all the despair of curse. And I want to remind us of that. I want to, I'm going to pray and, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about these things more next week. Um, but the good news of the gospel is that, that Jesus became our curse. And as we go to the communion table, that's what we're reminded of. We're reminded that, that the, the gracious one, the one who, who was all-knowing, who was completely perfect, who deserved nothing of curse, took your curse and my curse. And now we get to live a new life, a life of restoration because of it. Our Father, we thank you that, um, that in Jesus all the wounds are healed that there is hope, that we no longer have to live in despair, that despair does not define us, the pain, the things that we desire, the suffering, the brokenness in our lives and in our bodies and in our world are redefined because of you. And that we get to live a life of hope now 
a life of joy, a life of, of restoration, imaging you perfectly to one another. So Father, I pray as a family that you would teach us uh, how to live this way, that you remind us of our identity, that as we continue to look through these passages and we continue to spin out what it looks like to live as a family together and and how you've designed us to to live as a church and to live as as your people, that you would call us uh, more to those truths, Lord, that you um, you would call us deeper into your love, and that you would wrap your arms around us and, and that although we mourn things that are broken in our lives, we know that you love us and that you care for us and that, you cho- that all these things are bringing us into a deeper understanding of you. So Father, I pray that you would remind us of that and you would give us great hope today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.